Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's deputy editor. This government has two big challenges. The first is, to quote the Prime Minister, to make a success of Brexit. The second is to see off the threat posed by Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell and a Labour Party now dominated by the far left. In both cases, the government is in a bind. On the one hand, Corbyn and Brexit bring with them significant amounts of political and economic uncertainty. And so the government is acutely aware that it cannot afford to put a foot wrong. On the other hand, there is something to the argument that the Conservatives will never make a success of Brexit or defeat Corbyn if they go about government with a softly-softly, safety-first attitude. According to this theory, boldness and a collection of game-changing policies are the order of the day. What is true of the government's predicament in general is true of the Chancellor in particular as he prepares to unveil the budget in the House of Commons next Wednesday. Two recent budgets, Hammond's own earlier this year and Osborne's 2012 Omnishambles budget, are reminders that a Chancellor's first job is to avoid any unforced errors. Hammond doesn't exactly have much money or a big majority to play with, but some argue that fundamental weaknesses in the economy require decisive action and radical solutions. To further raise the stakes, Hammond's colleagues have pinned their hopes on the budget as a turnaround moment for the Conservatives after a torrid few months for the party. Will the Chancellor deliver a bold and brilliant budget? Or will it blow up in his face? With me to discuss this are Daniel Mahoney, Deputy Director and Head of Research at the CPS, Alan Lockie, Head of the Modern Economy Programme at Demos, Julian Jessup, Chief Economist at the IEA, and Alex Wilde, Research Director at the Taxpayers' Alliance. To kick things off, I'm going to ask you all a simple question, which is how optimistic or pessimistic are you about the uh, state of the British economy? Julian, do you want to go first? Uh, well, I'm actually relatively optimistic, and I think, indeed, that's one reason why the government shouldn't feel under so much pressure to increase spending at this year's budget. Um, it is true that the economy has grown a bit more slowly than it would otherwise have done as a result of the initial shock of the vote to leave the European Union. Um, but the bigger picture is that growth isn't actually that much slower now than it was before the referendum, uh, and unemployment has continued to fall. So I think the case for a big fiscal boost on the demand side is actually pretty weak. Um, probably somewhere in the middle of optimistic and pessimistic. Um, I think this is um, probably the last chance that the government's got to get the productivity thing right. Uh, a lot of our growth um, and the reason why the budget deficit has fallen is because there's been such a buoyant employment picture, um, but we're pretty much very near full employment levels. So productivity is really where we need to be going. So um if, if that falters, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So I think what this budget really needs to do is uh, focus on measures that don't have a, much of a short-term fiscal cost, but really try and push forward productivity. Uh, Alan, what do, you, what do you make of it? Uh, I mean, it very much depends on what happens in Brussels in December, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I'd be a lot more optimistic if we move to the next stage of negotiations and related to that, we get a transition arrangements set up. I think it's a slight irony of the budget is whatever Hammond uh, does, and I sort of agree certainly on the productivity analysis just provided, um, you know, that's the big issue for the economy in the next sort of three months because businesses are making decisions now about the next two years and so they've got a very, very short window to sort that out. Alex? 
Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think I agree with a lot of what's said. I think Julian's right that it's uh, it's not as bad as um, the Financial Times would would have you believe. I think it's you know, uh, relatively relatively benign at the moment. I do think that I'm not particularly optimistic about budget for um, revolutionary tax cuts, spending cuts, you know, whatever. But it does seem that Hammond doesn't seem to really do many good things, but he does seem to be quite good at stopping really bad things from, from happening. So. <laughs> so by a low, sort of on a low bar definition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, he seems to be pretty uh, robust in um, his commitment to getting the deficit down, and there's a lot of people... Uh, even within his own party, calling for lots more money to be spent on on this and that, and he's pretty sort of steadfast in saying no. We we have to sort of retain credibility and uh, hold firm on the spending side. So, you know, some good, some bad. Uh, that seems to me to be one of his problems politically is that he has people on in his party telling him to be bold and do bold things, but what they mean by bold um, is very different in different cases. Some 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 conservatives mean spend lots of money. Some mean, um, you know, uh, shrink the size of the state and tear up regulations and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julian, did you want to go on? Well, just on the point about productivity, um, obviously one of the challenges he's going to have to deal with in this budget is that the Office for Budget Responsibility is likely to take a more pessimistic view of the longer-term outlook for productivity, which means other things being equal, a weaker um, outlook for the real economy and also for the public finances. But um, ironically, I think it's doing so at almost exactly the wrong time. I think a lot of the the slowdown in productivity has been cyclical. It's been the, the flip side of a good story, which is the uh, rapid improvement in, in the labour market. But um, as the pool of um, spare labour dries up, I think naturally productivity will recover. You know, companies haven't had to invest in new capital and machines because they've been able to get a lot of cheap people to do the work for them. Um, But as the labour market tightens, I think productivity will naturally pick up without the government needing to do anything. And there's a further problem. I'm not sure the government can do anything on on productivity. I mean, its it's track record of investing in infrastructure, for example, is is appalling. Um, It would be spending more on infrastructure, for example, at a time when interest rates are rising, uh, and when there are relatively few spare resources in the economy now, so there's an increased risk of priving out, crowding out private sector investment. Instead of spending more money itself, I think it should be looking to deregulate the economy further to allow the private sector to have more confidence to do that spending instead. So I think the truly bold budget wouldn't be one where the government is spending more money, which is an easy choice, but instead one that focuses on reducing the burden of tax and regulation on the economy. Um, do we all agree then that the main, the sort of biggest economic problem facing the Chancellor is productivity or is is there is there something else out there that that you uh, think that is more important well yeah I mean I think I think you know where wages is the biggest problem not productivity now they Larry Summers has said that you know the, the, the link still holds uh, there's evidence suggesting the link still holds but we just heard today that productivity has, and you can't you can't buy a look for the OBR. They finally sort of downgraded at the time, and productivity just ticked up today by 0.9%. So it does support the analysis that full employment might finally start to sort of lift productivity up naturally, but wages still went down. So productivity went up and wages went down. So there's something in there uh, that is economically curious, and I don't certainly have the answers, and, and better economists than me don't really have answers on that either. So... You know, I would, I would, I would caution. It's not just about productivity; it's also about wages, and that the link seems a little bit more frayed than it usually is in traditional theory. I also think I'd be interested to see what Julian um, thinks about this. But there are also quite big measurement issues with with productivity, mm-hmm. and especially in um, you know in an economy where there is quite a large uh, public sector, and you have I think the public sector headcounts about I don't know like six million or, or so. I mean, how do you measure the how do you measure the productivity of a civil servant just sort of over the road in, in the home office? I mean, what's the what's the market value of of their output? I mean, how do we measure these things? And you know, if you look at uh, all sorts of productivity statistics, we frequently see stuff you know, the French are more productive than the Germans, and some of that's to do with um, unemployment, etc. But I do sometimes just look at these figures and think that doesn't quite um, that doesn't quite make sense to me. Yeah. yeah, I think on, on services, there's definitely an issue with measurement. Um, I think Matthew Hancock once made a very um, good observation that he said, if an app tells me 
um, there's a shortcut somewhere and I don't take public transport, that reduces GDP. You know, yeah. and where, so th- I totally say that. But I think um, the Bank of England did look at this and they said it was around about, it could account for perhaps four mm. percentage points of the difference. So that's about a fifth of... Um, okay. round. So I, th- it, I think it's partly to do with it, but I don't think it's pure, you know, wholly shows what isn't the, Isn't the obvious point, though, that, you know, all economy, all comparable economies would have the same problem with measurement in terms of the technologies and so on that are changing the economy. Um, but relatively speaking, the UK performs badly. So even if there's yeah. a measurement problem, it's, it's still probably yeah, not going too well. On and, and I think that it's important there are two problems. I mean, there probably is a measurement problem because most countries are mm-hmm. not struggling with productivity. It's just they're struggling at a higher level than we are. Well, I, I was going to say... What we're trying to explain is the the slowdown in productivity or the lack of recovery in productivity since the global financial crisis. And But a lot of the things that people point to are, are things that have been around for much longer than that. So, for example, the UK has a relatively low share of investment in GDP, but that predated the financial crisis. It certainly predated austerity. It's rather odd to, to blame our low level of productivity on that. I therefore much prefer the sort of cyclical explanations. You know, what is new since 2008, 2009? One is the the fallout from the financial crisis. So a lot of the weakness in productivity is simply due to the fact that we've had a lot of unemployed people who've been coming back into work. Um, The other factor, ironically, is increased government intervention in a number of sectors. So a lot of the weakness in productivity growth has been in, for example, financial services and and the energy sector, which are exactly precisely those sectors where the government has been doing more rather than less. So it all leads back to my contention that um, actually productivity is likely to recover of of its own accord without the Chancellor doing anything. And on top of that, anything the Chancellor is likely to do might even make the problem worse. Yeah, and on this, sorry, on this all this investment in infrastructure stuff, I mean, you think about, um, you know, there's tens of billions of pounds of private capital waiting to be invested in a third runway at Heathrow, and the government's effectively (laughs) been blocking it for, you know, for, for decades, effectively. So, I mean, why is... Why do uh, a lot of people seem to think that it's only sort of government investment that's worthwhile? I mean, the government doesn't have to do anything to get all that investment coming in. It's a purely uh, supply side issue. Alan, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's important on investment. It's important to to point out that you know British productivity was lagging behind Germany and France before the crisis. So, you know, the, the investment issue is an issue about why Britain's productivity isn't necessarily as good as some of our competitor countries. But yeah, I agree that it doesn't necessarily explain trajectory since the crisis. I, I also think it's, it's definitely worth pointing out there's a recent ONS survey on capital formation post the financial crisis and you know the problem with the UK is that we don't just have public austerity, we also have private austerity and things like capital allowances that George Osborne used a little bit when he was Chancellor didn't seem to have much impact on private austerity either so you know there are questions there and you come to a point where you know, who is going to invest? Maybe it does have to come from, from the state to a certain extent. Um, on, on productivity, more broadly, I think it, it's important. I think it's important, like, when we talk about productivity, we're always talking about the supply side things. We're talking about sort of skills or infrastructure and things that the government can do. I do sort of take the broader point that looking into the Bank of England analysis, which shows that the UK has an enormously... Uh, weird and unusual distribution of productivity at the firm level in terms of a very, very long tail of laggard firms and a sort of, you know, cluster of high-performing firms at the top. There's something about the demand side of productivity that UK firms aren't good enough at identifying what would boost productivity in their firm and demanding investments that would boost productivity too. So I think, you know, for me, I think it's, it, it could be a management issue. Um, I think that the Bank of England analysis shows that, you know, that the highest, the most, you know, the relevant factor for identifying who is a high productivity firm is foreign ownership um, or exposure to foreign investment. You know, there are issues there on the demand side as well as the supply side. Isn't one of, just to go back to the sort of politics of of productivity for a second, isn't one of the problems at the moment that it's a sort of, obviously everyone in Westminster agrees they've got to do something about productivity, it's a huge problem, um, economically, politically, in terms of wages and everything. Uh, but So that's a sort of truism on the one hand. And we actually ran something on CapEx about this. That's one truism. Another truism is that um, you've got to rebalance the economy and that there are parts of the country that need um, sort of support and attention. And actually that involves basically investing in inefficient and, and, and relatively unproductive 
corners of our economy. So, you know, you do have to sort of decide at one stage, if you're the government, do you want to, you know, what's your priority? Well, I agree with that. I mean, there are all sorts of trade-offs. I think another reason why productivity growth has been relatively low is that we've had an exceptional period of um, very loose monetary policy. So um, companies that might otherwise have gone to the wall have been allowed to continue struggling on. Uh, It may well now be that with interest rates rising, some of those companies will now go under. Uh, which in one sense is is clearly a good thing because it allow the resources released to be allocated to to more productive uses. Um, on the other hand, it does mean that there are going to be some important short run transitional costs as as people lose their jobs and and need to find others. And um, but I do think now that you know with the economy actually doing better than most people had expected, uh, certainly in the wake of the, of the Brexit vote, then um, actually this is the time to start making those more difficult decisions. And it may well be another example of how productivity does pick up without the Chancellor needing to do anything to, to help that process along. So it so, sort of segues nicely then to the, really, I think the biggest question on everyone's lips going, uh, going into this budget, which is whether or not the Chancellor should or, or will um, relax his, um, his fiscal rules. Um, I imagine there'll be a difference of opinion around the table. It's already been hinted at. But um, who who here wants to make the case for um, keeping those rules? I'm not sure what they are anymore, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're already so modest. I mean, if you look at the Conservative Party manifesto, it pretty much implies that we'll get an overall surplus by 2025, um, which I think is absolutely extraordinary. Um, so any softening of that programme, I think, would be would be quite a big risk. And obviously, that assumes there won't be any recession. Um, I mean, if you look since the 1970s, there has been a recession in every decade since then. Uh, so we are due one. Um, so I think, um, you know, if that comes, what tools do we have to respond? Monetary policy, yes, it's been tightened slightly, but uh, it's still very, very loose. If we're still running a budget deficit, do we have that many resources to respond to that? So I think... Um, Yes, there are going to be lots of pressures on Hammond to loosen the purse strings, but he does need to try and stay firm on that. Mm. I'd agree with that. I think he he may well loosen the the target even further. At the moment, the the target is to eliminate the budget deficit by the mid-2020s. I suspect he might modify that to refer to the budget deficit excluding capital spending. I mean, there's a half-decent economic argument for for doing that because, you know, capital spending in principle creates an asset that can be self-financing. So it's not necessarily leaving a huge burden for future generations. But I'm I'm uncomfortable with that, partly because, you know, the government's track record of capital spending is so poor. but also because I think it will, you know, loosen loosen discipline if you could just call something capital spending rather than current spending and therefore exclude it from the budget target. So um, I think there is going to be some slippage here, but not necessarily good slippage. Alan, you've written for capex, uh, making the case, making the case for yeah. basically breaking these, you know, ditching these rules. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I, it was, I think there's a political argument for it. Certainly, um, economically, I, 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 I think. You want to relax them, but not very much. And you do want to, you, you do certainly want to keep it to the capital side because that's where the multiplier effect is. I think the economy probably does need a little bit of animal spirits, which is basically based on the analysis of the fact that we have private and public austerity at the moment. And something needs to be done about that. But the political argument really is, you know, they're about to go into the most important negotiation economically this country's had in December. We need to get a sense of forward direction for businesses in the country this side. Uh, of Christmas and I think there would be no better way if you if you had a sort of big if you if you were basically looking gun barrel down at Michael Barney and says look we were prepared to do whatever it takes in terms of the economy to make sure that Brexit doesn't sink the economy Mm. then you are you are going to have a slightly better negotiating position with him so I, I think they should I think also there's a sort of overlap there with the with with the sort of demographics of where the Conservative Party is and where the Conservative Party needs to be at the next election, which is not entirely dissimilar to where they were at the last election, but just, uh, you know, hold back on sort of where Corbyn's growing his demographics and at the same time expand where they're growing in their demographics. I think they are, in all likelihood, looking to be a party of more of the deindustrialised North and Midlands. Uh, And I think that if you could... Uh, show a sort of big uh, sort of plan for sort of investing in these areas, uh, you would have a sort of political and a sort of economic case. Uh, Alex, isn't one of the, the problems with all of this that the government doesn't really have a 
economic vision. It hasn't really explained to the country what it believes economically. One 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 day we're told um, uh, we need a we need an energy cap. The next day we're told that capitalism actually isn't so bad and the market isn't terrible. And what's this government actually for economically? It's not really told us. Well, that's I don't, I don't have the answer to that question. I don't know what the government's um, economic policy is. I mean, I know bits of it. I mean, we want to reduce the budget deficit very, very slowly and um, we want to build more more houses, but it's pretty unclear whether that's going to be through you know, massive spending or, or supply-side reforms. And you, you're quite right. I don't really know um, what Philip Hammond thinks about any of these uh, issues. I mean, when he was... In opposition, as um, shadow chief secretary to the Treasury, he was extremely hawkish um, fiscally and um, you know, very free market. And now it's and just, quite eurosceptic. Yeah, well, there's that, that 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 as as, um, as well. But yeah, I don't I don't really know what he's for. I don't know what he thinks. I don't. It just seems sort of um, just seems like sort of semi competent managerialism at the moment, really. And I take it your I didn't actually get your answer on the the uh, fiscal rules you'd stick oh, to Oh, no, I don't think there's any justification for loosening them further. I don't think there was any uh, justification for loosening them at the last budget, actually. I mean, the um, the economy was growing quite nicely and they'd already been pushed back and back and back by, um, you know, by his uh, by his predecessor. So, no, I, I just can't see any uh, justification for, uh, for loosening it further. Even if he, Philip Hammond, came out and said, I've got an expansionary budget, this is a plan for Brexit... This is a plan for getting this economy through what is likely to be turbulent times, but instead of doing what I wanted to do or what I suggested do, the expansion of economics comes entirely on the supply side or deregulating the sort of I, mean, I think that Minford, would be more Minford light strategy. <laughs> I think, I mean, yeah. Is this not something he should consider? Because it seems it does seem to me what Oliver says that you know he he's caught between a rock and a hard place at the moment, and the, uh, the, the yeah, sense I, is that it's that it's drift towards something which. In my opinion, is still particularly economically worrying. I think that would be um, more tolerable than than a spending splurge, but I still think that there's there's plenty of um, there, there's plenty of spending cuts out there that, that that should be made and haven't been made. So I, I still think that there's um, there's ample scope for more spending cuts. Um, and, and what are the what are the obvious cuts. the obvious targets? Well, I mean, you're going to do the old the, the old classics such as uh, you know HS2 international aid. Um, you know, but the the problem is really that I mean that's obviously capital, but you know for the next I mean, it's going to take twenty odd years to build, and I think you know it's about four billion a year or something it's, like that. It's also very stupid. Yeah, it's incredibly <laughs> stupid, and I don't actually know anybody who's um, in favour of it. And I'm not against um, spending the money actually, in in that sense, but spending it on this project with such an incredibly poor. Um, benefit cost ratio. It's just uh, it's, I just don't understand it. Um, but you know there there is a there is a problem here in that so such large parts of um, government spending are are ring fenced. I mean you know if you're not so much of government spending is welfare, health, education, and if you don't look at those very very seriously, then you're going to have um, you know things like police budgets have actually been reduced. Fairly, fairly significantly, and there's you know you're quite limited with how much you can do, and put debt interest into that as well. That's not an optional. Mm. Uh, that's not an optional spending cut, and that's what is it forty odds, forty odd billion a year at the moment. So you know you are looking at quite a with the sort of ring fencing of various departments and budgets, etc. You are looking at quite a small area of uh, of the state which is going to have to make uh, you know the lion's share, if not all of the savings. Just um. On the spending cuts issue, so I completely agree that the ring fencing issue is very it's very ill-advised that the government have done that. But um, the reason why I don't think there are going to be any spending reductions is that if you look at the, I mean, two of the most responsible... I don't think there will be. No, 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 no. I've sort of, I've sort of given up hope, but particularly Indeed. because um, uh, if you look at the manifesto, I think two of the most responsible bits was A, breaking the triple lock, moving <laughs> yeah, that to a yeah, double lock, and uh, B... Um, means testing winter fuel payment and they dropped both of those um, things that would have a made savings and b led to more intergenerational fairness so i think we've just got to hope for the supply side stuff so planning reform big direction on heathrow expansion i'm very concerned that there seem to be delays on that yet again i think this is where we've got to hope that philip hammond um really attacks the problem hmm. but but i mean are we sort of also being a little bit sort of optimistic at the uh, the political 
you know, his political hand. I mean, Heathrow, I wouldn't like to try and get Heathrow through Parliament at the moment. Um, well, isn't the um, point about the, the triple lock, for example, or the, even the winter fuel allowances, you know, how many, how many MPs actually think that's a good, a good policy? If you take the if you take if you take if you take if you take the politics out of it, and so the point is, you you know, we can have these. The, the problem for the country is you can have these conversations about um, bold things that need to happen, but actually, you know, George Osborne's omni shambles unraveled because of pasties. You know, that seems like a totally <laughs> obscure thing, and and it was a massive deal. Well, I think the key thing here is to try and build a, a consensus for these changes, ideally before you actually announce them. I mean, that was the, the mm. big mistake he made with, um, <laughs> yes. with national insurance contributions in his in his last budget was to announce a change that actually wasn't daft. I mean, the Institute for Fiscal Studies and so on said it was a, a good thing to do, but he had basically sprung it on MPs, on the public, without explaining it properly. Um, I do think there is a reasonable chance you could explain why the triple lock on, on pensions is, is a bad thing. And it's going to be increasingly unaffordable as the, as the number of, of older people rises inexorably over, over the coming decades. But he, he needs to be willing to start that conversation now. And a whole host of other areas where, realistically, he's not going to be able to do anything uh, in this budget, but he should still be starting that conversation. So, for example, you know, property taxation, getting rid of, of stamp duty in particular. I mean, that's not something he can afford to do now, but needs to start that conversation. That, I think, would be truly bold. You know, rather than just chucking money at these problems, um, actually start thinking about a longer-term plan that tackles the problems at source, rather than, as I say, just simply throwing a few extra billion in their way. Oh, I think that on, on self-employment, I completely agree with that. I sort of uh, slightly worry that, that, you know, I think on self-employment, the government needs to work out you know what it what it believes in terms of self-employment at almost first principles level. You know, we're Demos, we're sort of attracted to it as a sort of you know a potential for a sort of almost un, almost pre-industrial idea of a universal egalitarian self-government over the means of production. We like it for that reason, um, but you know, the, I get the sense that he's being led by an almost sort of statist corporatist alliance, which says that you know on the statist side, look at the fiscal loss from self-employment. On the corporatist side, you know, employment is the natural order of things and self-employment is slightly perverse. I mean, I think, you know, it's a big issue. Uh, the Taylor Report looked at, um, I mean, we're, we're, we're a think tanker, so we always want a sort of big, yeah, yeah. big first principles look at taxation because... Because yeah. uh, that's your job. No, it's kind of my job, but also, you know, it makes sense to us. And, and you know, Miralees, for example, was a, was, was a relatively good attempt at that a few years ago. Um, you know, when you're sitting in the Treasury, it's slightly different, I guess. Um but yeah, no, I agree. I think that is exactly what Philip Hammond should be doing. I mean, the, 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 the triple lock is, is a universal agreement here, I think. Terrell, is you wanted to? I think he might actually, if, if what's in the newspapers about VAT thresholds uh, being lowered is true, I think he's potentially uh, walking into the exact same track yeah. that Julian, yeah, Julian described here because you're going to get people like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, there's the OTA, the Office for Tax Simplification Report. You're going to get the kind of... Um, tax policy purists saying this is a perfectly sensible idea um, you know there's that chart in the OTS report about this that shows that there are a huge number of um, specially um, sole traders that cluster around the VAT threshold of, of 85,000 um, but the reality is if he brings the threshold down to something like 20,000 um, it is going to be a tax increase on small businesses and the front pages of tabloid newspapers, who, let's face it, don't really like him anyway, are going to really go for him on this unless there are there are other tax cuts which make this sort of a revenue neutral mm. thing uh, when it comes to small business. But I, it, it just looks like a bit of a slow motion car crash for me at the moment. I think he's in danger of falling into that exact trap and doing something which maybe from a tax policy perspective is perfectly sensible, but... You know, you don't want to. It's not going to look good on the front page of the the Sun on uh, next Thursday. I'd put IR thirty five in, in 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 the same. Yeah, end. indeed. I mean, these are sort of indeed. things that, as Julian said, require a big look across the whole picture, really. And um, you know, there are there are sound tax principles and why you would be looking at them if you're in the Treasury. But you know, <laughs> you could be in trouble. You could be in trouble in the in in the front page of the Sun if he exactly. rushes into them without much thought. I think tackling intergenerational inequality is is another um, example of the potential pitfalls here. I mean, the, it, it's clear that you want to try and level the playing field somewhat between younger and, and older people, but 
I would suggest the way to do that is to remove some of the perks that older people benefit from rather than adding a whole new layer of subsidies and perks for, for younger people. I mean, a number of ideas floated already. One is the idea of you know, younger people paying lower tax in, in one form or another, for example, national insurance contributions. But it's not obvious to me that being young in itself is a good reason to pay less tax. Um, another idea... What about... What about, what about <laughs> exactly. Uh, might have said that a few years ago, but not now. Um, I mean, the other idea, of course, is... is, is latest bonkers idea on stamp duty which is to offer a temporary break for for first-time buyers which um we know isn't going to work i mean with fixed stock of housing and either it's just going to make everybody worse off because because prices rise or it might provide a temporary subsidy to first-time buyers but only at the expense of others including second-time buyers who may well include young growing households who are just as worthy of our support and sympathy as first-time buyers so it's it's another political gimmick that um, complicates the system. It ratchets up the you know, tax and spending um, yeah. for no obvious, no obvious benefit apart from a cheap headline that may well only last twenty four hours anyway uh, until it's widely debunked by the by the specialists and experts in this area. But you, then you have to potentially introduce more anti avoidance provisions for so to stop you know for instance people getting their children to buy their their next house and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you know the own literally the only virtue of stamp duty is simplicity that's the only thing it's got going for it and if we're going to make it even more complicated then it, the, oh, that's obviously extinguished julian you missed out my favorite um bung to the young which is the uh extension of the young person's rail card to 30 which is a tr- which is exactly <laughs> the sort of transformative policy that that we need Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can we um, talk about housing? Because we've sort of skirted around it. Uh, the we, had, we as as Julian you've you've mentioned the um, we're recording this a week before the budget and we've sort of been led to believe the announcement will be on something potentially be on something to do with stamp duty um, and an allowance for young for first time buyers. What uh, we've explained sort of what we think is wrong with that. I don't know if anyone is willing to sort of carry the can for that policy here. Um, what what should they be doing about housing? Well, the simple point is they ought to allow more houses to be built. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that the government or local authorities has to do it. Um, I'm pretty confident if you looked again at some of the regulations holding back development in the Green Belt, for example, you could uh, find the private sector willing to invest significantly more. Um, The Green Belt is, of course, politically another one of these extremely difficult issues. But um, I could think of various schemes where, for example, you could um, free up a um, a few acres of, of green belt for development, provided you found a few more acres somewhere else that you would actually protect more than is currently the case. Um, but the idea that green belt is, is sacrosanct, you can never build on it on any circumstances, I think is, is clearly precisely the sort of daft regulation that, that is holding back house building and therefore having all these knock-on effects on everything from intergenerational inequality through to labour market mobility. Um, we need, again, to do sort of root and branch review of why we have these rules in the first place and how they're applied. 
So on um, on green belt reform, agree with that. Um, just to be fair to the government, they have moved somewhat on that in a kind of politically savvy way. So local councils now have very high uh, building targets, and in uh, exceptional circumstances, they can build on green belts. So I think that is progress, uh, but it's not going to be enough. Another thing that doesn't get so much attention is that um, the government in 2015, well, the Conservative Party uh, pledged to extend right to buy to housing associations, which has only been piloted so far. It hasn't been spread around the country. Um, <clears throat> I think there are some issues with the way it's going to be funded, uh, but it's something that Philip Hammond has to, uh, you know, he has to carry through because a lot of people are hoping to take up that um, option. So that's something he needs to consider in his housing strategy. Um, so I think along with planning reform, review of the green belt making sure local councils utilise their land much better. He's got to really come up with something so this opportunity can be spread and a one-for-one replacement can be uh, implemented for those sold under that right to buy. Yeah, and also other than Greenbelt, within cities are bulk restrictions as well. I mean, sometimes you um, walk down streets in London, like central London, and there's sort of infill of three stories in between two five-story buildings. I mean, what's you know, what's all that about? If you look at if you look at London compared to a place like Manhattan, where it's a very very flat city, and we are, I know it's not wary of being um, appearing too sort of London centric, but that's obviously where the, the affordability crisis is at its its most acute. So it's um, it's building out and and also building up. And there are these sort of archaic rules, aren't there, about you have to be able to see St Paul's from Richmond Park, and I think that's uh, yeah, one of them. But these sort of yeah, yeah a, a hole in the hedge in Richmond Park, you have to be able to see St Paul's Cathedral from that. So you know that's why there are hardly any skyscrapers, and it's ridiculous. I mean, it's a very nice view, but it's not more important to preserve that view than people being than able the entire. To <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not entirely sure that the views of <laughs> St Paul's are. are are the biggest factor in London's housing crisis. Uh, I really sound <laughs> like example. a conservative. I'm sort yeah. of uh, uh, relatively pro the green belt. I think obviously, I think the idea of rebalancing, you know, there are areas where the green belt could be shifted uh, and you know expanded in other areas of the country. I think that's obviously a sensible thing. I think, I think that. But part part of the reason why I'm attracted to 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 the state, and I do mean mainly the local state, getting a bit more involved in housing, is because I think there is often a, a sort of um, uh, sort of imbalance between um, the houses that that big property builders want to build and the houses that people want to live in. Um, I also think that we we should be looking at from an industrial policy perspective as well as a sort of housing perspective, looking into things like custom homes and, and the new generation of prefabs. Um, but I think my, my main point would be, you know, sort of don't do any sort of whiz bang. Uh, I mean, get rid of help help to buy expansion, mm-hmm. uh, but don't do any whiz bang tax reforms. I think. You know, about homes may well be true that they're not quite making as much money from their sort of two bed flats in zone three, but let's just stay calm for a bit. It, it, the green belts are maybe sort of symptomatic of one thing that's a common thread through our entire conversation so far, in that basically that Philip Hammond's job is so hard because politically Britain's got itself to a into a position where there are basically too many sacred cows there's we discussed the ring fencing of various uh, various spending areas the nhs most obviously um and so basically we've got to a stage in british politics you could argue where the only way out is 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 a politician probably a conservative politician that says we need to go back to first principles on a whole range of of these issues um not that i think that's about to happen but but um, what do you what do you think of that? Well, I think that's a that's a very good point. And again, the NHS is a, is an interesting example. I think in the in the short term, there's there's clearly pressure on him to to spend more money on the on the NHS. And you know, arguably, he could find a few billion here or there, including, by the way, from the EU contributions that we hopefully will no longer be making soon. And that have a nice political ring to it as well. Um, it seems to it, me, just sorry, <coughs> on that one point, it seems an inevitability that at some stage someone says 
we are spending £350 million <laughs> on the National Health Service. I cannot believe they didn't put it in the manifesto at some point. But it will, it's, anyway, that's a small point, but it will happen. Yeah. I can't see how, why yeah. it wouldn't happen. But it's only... Whether or not that's EU money, by exactly, the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it's only obviously a, a sticking plaster, to use the appropriate analogy here, because we know that the bigger problem with the, with the NHS is going to be ever-increasing demand, particularly because mm. of the ageing of the population. So um, you need to look at the fundamentals of the, of the NHS and... Uh, the comparison here is always either be, you know, between the, the British system and the US system as if they're the only two alternatives. But um, across Europe, the health services are run very differently. They do have um, much more charging, uh, much more involvement of the, of the private sector than we do here in the, in the UK. Um, inevitably, that will be called privatisation. Um, You'll get called that anyway. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. whatever they do, it will be called privatisation. So yeah, but, it, but uh, that clearly it has to be the... You know, the the future. I mean, you, you need to raise more money to, to fund the NHS. You also need to make the allocation of the limited resources of the NHS more efficient. And I think the only way to do that is is some form of contribution from from patients, those patients who can afford it. You know, not necessarily everybody, but those patients who can afford it to the to the cost of the specific care that they are receiving. Um, similarly, to care for the for the elderly. I mean, I think it's unreasonable to expect the taxpayer as a whole, you know, the younger taxpayer. Um, to finance spending on on older people, regardless of the assets that they have. I mean, they, you have to recognise that people are going to have to make a bigger contribution to their own social care in the longer term, whether that's through the assets that they own or through some form of um, personal insurance. But we essentially can't continue as we are now. We can we can maybe chuck a few billion quid at these problems in the short term, but fundamentally we do need to start again from scratch and ask how are we going to finance these models in future. The problem, of course, is that's... The- you know, if you do it, if you don't do it properly, that's the surest way to give uh, Jeremy Corbyn the keys to number ten to start, start starting to fill around with that, the NHS. And even if they're the, even if that's the right thing to do, and that's the, yeah. I think I think with NHS reform, it's it's the sort of thing that's ripe for a royal commission or something of that kind. Um, I think in the Corbyn era, that's probably very very unlikely. But um, I think proposing any sort of modest changes to the NHS is always, as everyone said, presented as privatisation. So no, um, I mean, the Conservatives certainly won't go into an election um, advocating what needs to be done. So I think at some stage, a Royal Commission will have to will have to be set up in this um, issue. And it'll probably be when, you know, there's, there's sort of a near crisis, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. <clears throat> I agree in principle, but sometimes you've got to be careful what you, what you wish for. Um, I can't imagine the Treasury will be very keen on a Royal Commission because it will uh, inevitably um, call for more spending. Um, so that that will probably hold it back. And you've got to be careful who's who's on these, you know, who's, who's contributing yes, to these, uh, these commissions. So have a commission, uh, but pack it with your yeah, men. It's, basically it's, your... Yeah, but it's quite curious <laughs> that um, NHS reform is always massive political headache. It's always extremely unpopular. Um the British Medical Association will oppose any reform whatsoever. Yet politicians keep doing it, and that really is quite indicative of quite how dysfunctional the system is. The fact that they feel the need to try and do reform, even though they know it's going to be a complete nightmare and be extremely unpopular. I mean, I, uh, I wouldn't. I certainly, certainly, if I was sitting in the Conservative HQ, wouldn't be trying to reform the NHS at the moment. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, I think, you know, a, a little a little bit of money here and there, certainly 350 million a week will definitely happen at some point. Um, but I certainly wouldn't be chucking a load of money at it as well because I don't think you should ever put big, big money into something without a clear reform. And what's going to happen? Well. I mean, is it just all going to go on pay? For instance, in, you know, between 2000 and 2010, the budget doubled in real terms and we saw productivity yeah. in the NHS what, fell and pay and headcount went up. What I would so say where's is, the money actually going? What I would say is that I do think Simon Stevens has got a relatively, has got a plan for the NHS which should be given uh, a chance. Some of it involves investment, but most of it involves efficiency savings. Uh, I think it would be interesting to see how things go in Manchester and other areas where they're looking to integrate services at a more devolved level. I think that's an interesting model of the for NHS more broadly. Uh, but the two, I mean, the two biggest issues in terms of the demand side for the NHS are mental health and social care. And, you know, from personal experience on the mental health side, if I had sort of 20 billion to spend on that, I certainly wouldn't be giving it the NHS. I'd be looking to a new service completely because I don't understand it. And on the social care side, I think it's, you know, it, it is going to be more of a, an insurance-based system. Uh, where people are going to have to make a personal contribution. So, 
you know, the NHS just let it take on and see how society Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we've, we've ended up talking about the NHS, but it's unlikely to play a big part in next Wednesday's um, proceedings. Um, can I ask you all uh, what you, we've said sort of what, what, what... I mean, I think, sorry, just to yeah, the public yeah. services very quickly, I think, you know, I think it still hasn't been picked up very much, but concerted campaigning at the school gates might have swung the election to a hung parliament. Yeah. So I think actually politically, uh, and I, 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 I wouldn't do this, I think the school's funding is low down on, on, on the education priorities when you look at things like vocational education or, or, or what's happened in early year services. Um, but I think the real political pressure on the public service side at the moment is from schools. There's a general, how worried do you think um, uh, government ministers are of this sort of potential, you know, with already a fairly turbulent political outlook, Brexit and so on, that that basically there's a sort of, that public services over the next year or so start to, people, there's a sort of on the ground sense that they sort of aren't really working very well. We, we I mean, we, we had this uh, business with uh, letters at schools um in the last election. So there's a sort of, do you think government ministers should be worried about this kind of day-to-day thing, you know? Yeah, I think the big one is the public sector pay cap. Um, And I think, I mean, the government's managed to restrain it for seven years, which is pretty unprecedented, actually. And I think think that's been absolutely necessary. But um, there's already some cracks in the, in the public sector pay cap. And I think there's going to, that's where the big pressure is going to come on the government. And I think, um, I think they need to sort of, have a, a tailored approach for different areas um, and they need to really make sure that they don't give in too much to this because once you give in in one place it will just it's like yeah. a balloon it will it will yeah. it'll spiral i just want to do two um to take you back to the budget do two uh, last questions the first uh, first question is um what would be the top of your each just short answers the top of your sort of budget wish list one 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 policy or measure that uh, is you think is the sort of absolute no-brainer for the chance, I should say it doesn't have to be politically possible. It can be <laughs> pie in the sky. Oh, right. okay. So you can really. Um, <laughs> who wants to go first? Uh, I, I mean, it's not. It's not particularly. It's a social thing. It's not an economic one. But um, you know, as has been pointed out by various people, the Tories are sleepwalking in towards their poll tax moment for the new era. They need to change the access rules on the universal credit. There's no point having a pilot system if you ignore everything that the pilot, mm-hmm. pilot system came back with. Uh, I would also invest in universal credit. Uh, there are three principles behind universal credit. The tapering, which is why it needs to be saved. Simplification, which is also a good thing if they can get it to work. Uh, but there is also quite big revenue cuts in there. And I think you also have an opportunity, if you invested in that, to outflank the Labour Party from the left, which would be politically interesting. Because they, they didn't put any of that in, in, in the manifesto. Yeah. I, think, I think a very standard one, just what I'm really looking forward for in the budget is some real supply-side reform in housing and I think a recommitment to this right-to-buy extension to housing associations because um, a lot of uh, people are waiting to take up the opportunity and I think the government needs to deliver on that. Well, on the spending side, I, I, I agree, actually, my priority would be something on, on universal credit. I, I did actually visit a, a food bank a month or so ago as a guest of the Trussell Trust and was very impressed by the work that they were doing, but they're clearly under enormous pressure because of the, the difficulties around the implementation. Um, this is I, specifically the gap as well in the um, yeah. when people get the money, basically. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think there was someone who said today, if you applied for universal credit today, Christmas, you wouldn't yeah. get anything till after yeah. Christmas. I mean, that's all. Yeah, I mean, that, and as you say, what's the just, point? What's the point of a pilot if you don't fix? Yeah, exactly. Like that. That, that's clearly bonkers. I mean, for the, for the, for the sake of a few hundred million, which might all, all it might actually cost, um, you're risking a, a a project that you know a proposal that's fundamentally sound that even the opposition would would agree with. So that's just bad economics and, and bad politics at the same time. In terms of what I, what I would like to see, I'd, I'd very much like to see an emphasis on reducing the burden of tax and regulation rather than increasing spending. Um, I think in particular he needs to recommit to uh, the tax cuts that have already been promised in terms of increasing the personal allowance and also reducing corporation tax. I think that's a very important signal to send um, ahead of Brexit. Um, And also the many ways in which he can boost the economy on the supply side without spending any more money simply by by deregulating. I think we touched upon the the housing market, but there are many other areas as well where, you know, he can do good without actually spending any much, any more money at all. Alex? 
On the spending side, I think um, some kind of um, devolution of um, wage setting because uh, national pay bargaining's a massive distortion in the economy and it's very expensive. Something on that, although that would be difficult and uh, somewhat unpopular, so I don't think they will. Um, but on the tax side, I just think something on, on stamp duty. I mean, they... Um, the Treasury have constantly um, sort of defended this on the grounds that, oh, well, it is actually bringing in more money, but it does now look as if um, the revenues from sort of central London stuff are starting to are, are starting to fall. So I do think there's a case for looking at the, the top rates there. But again, he's got to be very careful with it politically because, you know, cutting taxes on um, property purchases over £1.25 million is perhaps not the most populist uh, measure. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you, can get, you, you can do it if you also do something further down the, um, you know, further down the, uh, further down the sort of value, uh, value chain. Yeah, that's, that's particularly tough when the, uh, the opposition party is advocating and forcibly probably, yeah. seizing those houses and after a, uh, after a disaster in, the, uh, in and, London. And, and you'll probably benefit from it personally as well. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's also a bit of a difficult one for any, any Chancellor living in Surrey. <laughs> so a final um, entirely uh, silly question, which, uh, because who would make predictions uh, in 2017? But next year, who will be delivering the budget? Will it be Philip Hammond? Will it be John McDonnell? Will it be someone completely different? And uh, what will the British economy look like then? Uh, I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna go with Sajid Javid. Okay. Um, and will there be a? And will there be a sort of? Um, will all will all be calm on the Brexit front with a nice tra- transitional deal wrapped up, or or are we? Or will it be um, panic stations? I hope so, and I think yes. Okay, Dan. I think I'll go for Amber Rudd, obviously because she did our launch, and also I think she she's very well placed to perhaps take that role. Um, and I think the economy, I'll just take what the IMF says, will probably look pretty similar to what it is now. Growth will be pretty similar. Um, yeah, so I, I don't think okay. there'll be much change. Uh, well, I'm an optimist. I think that we will either get a, a good deal on Brexit or we'll get no deal, and no deal won't turn out to be the disaster that many people fear. Uh, the economy will actually therefore grow more quickly next year than this year. Um, I think in that context, it doesn't really matter who the Chancellor is. I suspect actually it'll probably still be Philip Hammond. I mean, we'll still have you know, May as Prime Minister, Philip Hammond as, as Chancellor. Um, so it'll be a year of surprises, but hopefully positive surprises for a change. I think it will probably still be Hammond unless he does something something that similar to, to last time. And as I said earlier, I think this VAT threshold is potentially something which could mm. could be extremely um, extremely damaging. Um, but yeah, I think it more likely than not it, w- it will still be Hammond, and I think it, much much the same as as it is now. Really, I don't think much is going to change at this budget. I don't think much will change in the. Um, what's it called now? The spring statement. Um, so yeah, I think we'll be sort of maybe sat here in, in twelve months' time having the same conversation. <laughs> You're all being far too responsible with my cheeky last question. I wanted someone to say John McDonnell will be in power, and uh, no, no, this no, is no. the beginning of the end. But anyway, because there's no election though. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think that's uh, that's uh, enough. So yeah, thanks a lot. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.